The Screen Directors Guild of Ireland presents Directors in Dialogue with Michael Opendahl, facilitated by Nasa Hardiman. I was always fascinated by directing. I'm not really sure why. I grew up on an onion farm in Oregon with my mother. Interesting tiny little theater there. It's the, uh, we were outside of Salem, Oregon, and the capital is uh, Salem. So everybody works for the government, and they all get lots of time off, and they all, many people devote their time to this theater. And so it was really a wonderful experience there. I got really hooked on it there. I used to direct little plays in my barn for the six or so people we could get to come because there weren't, it wasn't a very populated area. And then I went down to Los Angeles, and I started directing theater there while I was in college as well. <clears throat> and I had some success directing some plays around town. And uh, I went to theater school instead of film school as in a LA. choice. In LA? Yes. And that was a choice because I thought it would make me deal with actors better or understand them more, um, which worked out well for me. And I was able to continue doing theater, and I got to meet a lot of wonderful actors. So when I was able to direct theater around Los Angeles, I was able to uh, cast a lot of really wonderful actors who I happened to know. And I got lucky enough to be involved with a theater there called the Actors Gang, which is Tim Robbins Theater Company. Yeah. And my company, we started, I had a little theater company. And when we started, I was a junior in college, which was almost the same setup that Tim Robbins' whole gang was, the Actors Gang. They were juniors in college, and they kind of saw us as a, you know, the next batch um, about 15 or 20 years later. Wow. So they were kind to us, and they produced um, <clears throat> some of the early plays, and they're they have a big, wonderful theater, and uh, it's under what's called the 99-seat contract in Los Angeles, where you can, um, which is being amended sadly now, but at the time, if you were 99 seats or less, you didn't have to pay the actors very much at all. It was, it was shameful, but I mean, they knew <laughs> going in <clears throat> that they were going to get nothing for rehearsal and they get $5 per performance. Jesus. But that's, that's, that's love of theater. Yeah, and it's a thriving love of theater in Los Angeles. There's a lot of people who do it. Everybody knows when they're getting into it. And it's the kind of situation that as directors and actors, you know, someone has to let us do our work. You know, someone has to fund it and get it all together. And who was writing the material? <clears throat> the material was wildly different. I, when I was in the theater, I really enjoyed picking a very disparate prep play from the one I had just done. So I started with a play called Suburbia that Eric Bogosian wrote. And I was lucky enough that he came to see a production of it at USC, where I was in the theater school, um, because they gave me a, a great scholarship. <laughs> so I went there. Assumed modest. You skip over the fact that, and actually, I was a scholarship student. <laughs> I was. Yes, it was quite. It was quite great. But I didn't want to go to Los Angeles at all. But they gave me a scholarship, so it was kind of there was no choice. So you were heading towards theater. That was where you wanted to go. No, I always knew I wanted to do camera work, but I knew I wanted to. I was working at a video store when I was in high school, and I would watch all the movies that we were supposed to watch, or at least some of them. And I thought, i got to figure out how to deal with actors, because I thought you can make your movie look terrible and have a great performance or performances, and you're all right, but if it looks beautiful and nobody feels anything, then you're screwed. So true. <clears throat> so I thought, I'll, I'll go to theater school, and then right after theater school, my deal with myself was, I've got to figure out cameras and you know all of the technical aspects of camera work that I was unfamiliar with. Okay, so, so it was very, it was, you were, you were quite precise about how you were going to do this. Yes. But the main, the main skill was working with actors. Yes. Is, is that unusual? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
But I, all I can say is that my friends at the time who were in the USC uh, film school, which is a renowned, you know, world-class film school, and it's just great, but they, when they were making real projects that, that uh, were budgeted, they would work with actors the way that we work with actors now in America. I don't know how this differs from what you do, but when we work with actors, they basically show up on set, you rehearse briefly, and then you get going on the lighting, and then you pretty much start shooting. You know, obviously, you can talk to them during the lighting, and you can, I don't, is that how it works here? Yeah, pretty much, have, yeah. So they were in the same kind of situation, and it instilled in quite a few of them a fear of actors, because I would be on their sets, and they would say, you know, this guy is just, he's not doing it, and I was like, well, you gotta go in there. I mean, he's, he thinks he's doing it. He thinks he's doing what you want, and you're not saying anything, so... And they didn't really have time to cultivate a, an approach to dealing with actors. And I felt that that, at the time, I think and hope it's changed by now, but at least at that time with my friends in that school, um, that was how they dealt with it. So I felt in my case, at that particular school at that time, I made the right move because it did allow me to work with them. Of course, I was very ignorant of a lot of technical aspects. So then I went to Paramount. <clears throat> I went to Paramount Pictures as uh, PA, which is, you know, production assistant, the lowest guy around. And um, I worked on a sitcom there called Becker, which Ted Danson starred in. And, um, There's an actor to conjure with. <laughs> and Ted is a, well, to make a long story, well, a little longer. <laughs> um, I was able to, when I was at Paramount, they were looking to start a new program of making new sitcom directors. And they thought the best way to do this is to get them out of theater. And so they picked me and another gentleman to be the candidates for this really nebulous, kind of strange little program that nobody knew about. And at the end of it, we were going to direct a forgotten sitcom called Girlfriends that was on a network that's been canceled, <laughs> in addition to the show. <clears throat> so uh, I was appointed as this assistant to a director, a sitcom director, and that's how they would pay me to be his assistant and to shadow him and figure out how to direct sitcoms and then at some point someone would decide I was ready and I would get to do that. But then everyone at Paramount got fired and I <laughs> was in this program that no one knew about and I was literally just an assistant to this director. So I was one step up from being a PA. Oh God, it's like being a spy. I know and I kept saying, but no, what about girlfriends? And everyone was like, what are you talking about? And girlfriends didn't know, no one knew anything. So this program just vanished. <laughs> and. Uh, so I kept directing plays, thankfully. Um, people kept telling me not to, but I kept doing it because it was the only way I could continue to direct. Everyone was afraid that I would be seen only as a theater director, which is a valid concern and does happen. But on the other hand, if I wasn't directing plays, I would just be a PA, and I thought, I might as well do them both and hope for the best. So you were honing your craft all this <coughs> time uh, with mm -hmm. actors. Uh, yes. So by the time you got on the set of Becker, for instance, yes, th that was an area in which you were completely confident. Because uh, well, I imagine, you know, I was approaching more somebody confident like, than I was, yeah. <laughs> like Ted Danson, who's uh, you know the consummate performer and very uh, very assured in terms of how he seems to approach everything. Was that was that because that was was that your first directing job? Uh, yes, my first camera directing job was that show Becker, where I was a PA, and the reason that I got that job was because of Ted Danson. I was probably the most annoying PA you could find because I kept asking everybody for money to do plays, including Ted Danson. <laughs> and, uh, and then when he finally gave me money, because he kept forgetting his checkbook, and I remember him one day 
coming up to me and saying, all right, motherfucker, come here. <clears throat> Got my checkbook today. And he wrote it out, and he gave me a little check. And uh, I thought, now he's coming to the play. And I'm sure he thought, now I don't have to go to the play. <laughs> and uh, he came, and he brought his family, and I think he was expecting a very small production. But I would always wait until I had enough money, especially now that I was around all these rich writers and everything. Uh, I would wait till I had enough money to really make a good play so it wasn't just sort of a black box thing. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I felt like I had done enough directing that I wanted to make sure that I could have spectacular elements of set and costume and lights. Right. And, uh, it's the film director in you. <clears throat> yeah, and the 99 seat rule, the reason I brought that up is that it all, all it meant is that you have to have 99 seats. The theater can be as big or small as you want. It can be less than that or more than that. The actors gang at the time could hold probably 300 seats if they wanted to, but to maintain the contract, you just have this huge stage because you've only got 99 seats. And uh, so we had this massive stage and when I was um, PAing around Paramount, I would walk by this one set in particular whenever the stage doors were open and it was, they were making a Star Trek movie of some kind. And they had these huge stalactites, you know, the, the mm -hmm. things that hang down from caves and stalagmites that come up. And I thought, I'm going to get those. <laughs> because <laughs> the play that I was directing at the time was set in a cave. And it's this old French play from 1636, I think. But uh, it was um, set in a cave, and this man conjures all these images of, there's a conjurer, a wizard kind of guy, who conjures these images of, of this old man's life. Because the old man's trying to find his son, can't find him, and is finally driven to go to this cave, which he doesn't really believe in, but then the sorcerer kind of makes these images happen. So it was a very not realistic play. Very you know, it was not play. Yeah, and it wasn't naturalistic, and it's funny and great, and some of it's in verse, so it has all these issues with it. But it, it was really great, and uh, I had this cave design that we had been working on forever in the idea that we weren't going to get the stalagmites and stalactites, but I thought we're getting those. And I went into the set and talked to the uh, Star Trek people and said, what are you going to do with this set? You know? <laughs> and they were like, we're going to throw it away. What do you think? And I was like, well, I got a better idea for you. And they were like, get the hell out of here. And I pestered these guys for about three months while they were shooting this thing. Wow. And I kept saying, like, look, I can have people take it down. And they're like, you don't know how this works at all. <laughs> we have people who get paid to take it down. Well, I can drive it away. We have people who drive it away. You can't even drive on this lot if you're not a Teamster. So I kept talking to them and talking to them, and finally, probably because of annoyance, they finally caved in and said, we will drive this to your theater, which was very close to Paramount, thank God. And they said, we'll drive it to your theater. You have a half an hour to unload it, and whatever you unload, you can have, and everything else we're going to throw away. Wow. So I got the stalactites and stalagmites, and they were really amazing and huge. And so when Ted walked into the play, it was a pretty spectacular situation, and I think he was pretty surprised that it wasn't a more somber <laughs> and uh, low-tech event. Um, then he went to the creator of Becker and said, I think you should give this kid a shot. Wow, wow. And, he, and so that's really why I'm here, because of course the creator said, the guy who brings me lunch, you want me to let him direct the show? And. Uh, he said, I, I think so. So, so that I, was a quantum leap in terms of where you were oh, yeah. in the business. Yeah. But it was on the basis of your own uh, creative drive, the fact that you'd been doing this in order to do it, because yeah. you wanted to do it. And you I was very, it. very lucky about it. And then I had a nice, intimidating meeting with the creator, who happens to be one of these people who has a very severe face and always looks angry. Even if he's probably just thinking about a puppy, he looks like he's going to pull your throat <laughs> out. Um, so he sat there and said, why should I let you direct my show? I thought, well, 
pretty good question. <laughs> so I uh, mentioned Ted and trying to sway him, and eventually he entrusted me to direct the show. So I got to um, experience what it's like to go from a PA to a director on a show, which of course is a, I mean, I, to uh, boast a bit is a pretty amazing achievement, but it also creates one of the most hostile environments that you can imagine, because then you find out just how many people really do want to direct. Yeah, yeah. Because all these people who I thought were my friends were not, and were very, it was a hostile situation. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I walk in like this young idiot, thinking that everyone's still going to be so happy for me, because I got this shot, and, and they were not. So uh, that was just how that had to go. Some people were friendly, and the actors were all fine. Um, but I got to direct it, and uh, it went really well. But there was, I'm just going to pause for one second to tell you about my first day on the set, which was rehearsal went great. And on a sitcom, you only, your goal is to try and reduce the hours before you get into shooting. You don't even have cameras until the day before you shoot. You just sort of stage it like a play. And everybody comes every day and watches a run-through of it, much like a play. And um, the first day that I had, everything's going great. And when we have the run-through, I do it at a good time. And I knew as a PA, if you if your run through is at four or five p.m., everyone's like, oh, God, you're blowing it," and they don't want to stay there that long. <laughs> so uh, it's all about trying to maximize your work in getting everybody out in time, uh, so they can just go to the spa or whatever they do. Um, <clears throat> so when I was, I brought them all down for the run through, and I really thought I was hallucinating when the run through began because everyone was up there, and they were they were throwing it. It was clear that they were throwing the run through. It was something like... The actors. Yeah, they were like, this is so great. I'm really happy to be here. I've been looking Shit. forward to this night all... And Ted Danson is up there really acting with them and trying to wake them up. And I was thinking, like, what is going on? Could it be this bad? And it wasn't... I mean, it was bad. It was like they were absolutely throwing it. And this is in front of the creator and the executive. Oh, yeah. And the whole crew. And everybody... Lovely. The whole crew is there. The costume department. Everybody has to watch the run-through. And so we're all watching it, and everyone's looking over at me like, way to go, champ, you know? <laughs> and I'm sitting there thinking, what could be going on? They must just hate me. And they decided, they fooled me all day. Everything seemed to be fine. There was one little bit of comedy blocking that I was really happy with, and this guy did it. And I thought, well, there's one thing. And then he stopped the run-through and went back and did it again with the block. <laughs> and I just thought, well, these guys obviously are just angry that I got this job. And then at the time... PAs, there was still a phone that had a red light um, that you would answer as a PA. You stand next to the phone, and when the red light went on, you would answer it and then go find whoever they were after. So after the just, I mean, a debacle. I'm not overstating it at all. Everyone was literally like this. Ted was up there. He would hit people, and they were just like, blah, 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 blah. And I it's just It's like a thought, nightmare. Oh, it was a nightmare. I couldn't, f I was pinching myself and looking around like, Am I hallucinating? Is there like some kind of event going on in my mind where I'm corrupting reality? And uh, then the guy who has my PA job at the phone comes over and says, yeah, Dave Hackle wants to talk to you. He's the creator of the show, so of course he wanted to talk to me. And I had to go down to the writer's room, which I always dreaded as a PA because these are like 12 comedy writers who've been writing comedy for about 30 years. And they're amazing. They do Mary Tyler Moore, Cheers. They're all expert joke writers. So, and they're looking for anything that doesn't have to do with the show to not talk about the show anymore. So you walk in with lunch and everybody makes jokes about what you're wearing or whatever and it's like, just get this out and I gotta get out of here. And so I go down to the room and everyone's silent and looking down and it was like no jokes at all and Dave said, what the hell went on up there? 
And I said, I don't know. I'm sorry, I know that's the worst thing a director can say, but I don't know. I do know what works and what doesn't work in the script, because in sitcoms every day they rewrite it. And I said, I can sit here in the rewrite all night with you and tell you what works. I know you have no reason to have any faith in me, but I do know where the problems are. And then they, uh, he said, well, it sounds like your friends really fucked you up there. And I said, yeah, they really did. And so I stayed for the rewrite. And then the next day I went into rehearsal and I'm just sort of waiting for someone to tell me what's going on. And we go into rehearsal and everything and I talk to Ted and uh, everything's sort of fine and no one's really mentioning it until about halfway through the day people start coming up and saying, oh, did you think that was about you? And I was like, yeah, sure did. And so did everybody else. What was it about? And they were in a contract dispute and everyone except for Ted. And so they were literally throwing the run through to show these people, if you don't pay us the money, this is how we act. Oh my gosh. And they were all like, oh, sorry. I can't believe you thought that was about you. And I was like, so that was a great trial by fire. I mean, looking yeah. back on it, it was really wonderful because, and also the set construction guys came over to me the, right before the PA came over the day before to tell me that the boss wanted to talk to me and said, where do you want this camera portal? Because there was this, involved sequence for a sitcom where it was kind of a single camera situation and I needed a camera portal in this big set and again I had to for the first time say the worst thing a director can say which is I don't know and uh, and they laughed they literally laughed right at me and said you know uh, tomorrow if we do it it's going to be at least three times as expensive because we're going to have to work overtime and I was <laughs> like yeah yeah I understand and then the guy interrupted me and so finally after the next run through the next day after they had solved the dispute, I guess, or at least made their point, and they all acted correctly. <laughs> the way we had rehearsed it, everything went great, and I was able to say to the construction guys, the portal goes right there, <laughs> and they were able to say that's the main support junction of the entire set. <laughs> <laughs> but I had done a lot of set construction myself in the lean times, and I was like, get some hog troughs, I know how this works, you oh, can do great. it. And uh, they were like, mm, all right. And then it all went really well after that. But it was, looking back on it, I'm very thankful that it was such a trial by fire because I really felt like I had no friends, I, no one was helping me out at all. So you really do kind of come face to face with what you think you know and what you really know and what you need to know. And so that ended up working great. And it went from a heart attack to, you know, going very well. And I got to do more episodes of that show. Wow. And wow. Matt Weiner was a disgruntled writer on that show. He went on to create Mad Men. And he met me then and was kind of impressed that I was able to that you didn't go off bring him lunch die. one day and well and just going from PA to director was his main thing and uh, and he was writing the pilot of Mad Men at that time wow and he asked me if I would help him write it as a writer's assistant which is an official job in in uh, Hollywood I don't know if you have that here but it's no. like in the writer's room for all the comedy writers they'll say something like we need a new joke here and then all the comedy writers will start pitching jokes and there's someone in the corner writing down everything they say and the creator says, you know what, I liked her third one. And sometimes she might not remember the wording because they throw it out and then they're trying to come up with another one. And so the writer's assistant is a very complicated, difficult job and you need to type really fast and have all these other things going on. And I said, I have none of these skills. And he said, uh, but I want someone who knows story and character and who can direct. And I said, okay, uh, but I can't do it, I'm doing another play. And he said, isn't there someone just like you? And I said, actually there is, my friend Robin, who was my stage manager. So she went on to help him write the play, uh, I mean the uh, pilot of Mad Men as a writer's assistant basically. It wasn't a co-writing thing. Um, 
she didn't get credit and, and didn't deserve credit. She just sort of helped him out. But I ended up being like the third person outside of Robin and Matt's wife to read the pilot of Mad Men. Wow. Which of what course, was the pilot like when you read it at that stage? It was extraordinary and almost exactly what it was shot. Really? Seven years later. Wow. It took seven years wow. of constant denial. Nobody wanted to do that show. And we, Why? I why don't was it know. so hard? I really don't it's know. very different. Very different from anything. I guess it was. I mean, it, I don't really know why. Nobody wanted... The biggest case, and the, probably the most famous, some of you may have heard of it, was HBO. When uh, Matt quit Becker because he hated it and just quit. Didn't even have another job. <laughs> and... Uh, then he got hired onto The Sopranos based on the pilot of Mad Men. Wow. And um, David Chase, the creator of The Sopranos, went to HBO and said, I'm, I've got my next project, and it's going to be this, I'm going to, Mad Men, I'm going to be the showrunner, because you won't trust Matt, because Matt didn't have enough um, credit at the time. And uh, Matt will also, he'll be my second in command, and uh, this will be my next show right after The Sopranos. He was going to go right into production, and HBO said, no, thank you. And wow, but they regretted that decision. Well, that guy got. But it fired. worked out better from. <laughs> <laughs> worked out better for Matt Weiner anyway, right? Because. Uh, it did, especially because that was never a show that needed nudity or or profan uh, profanity, but. Um, Fucking right. It probably. <laughs> it probably would have had a lot more because it does tend to be on those, on those shows they like to have. Yeah, I've seen Game of, of Thrones. On. I know what we're talking about. Yeah, they always figure out how to get a shirt off. Anyway, listen, we're going to jump forward because uh, I want to show your clips. Okay. Uh, I got the clips of this afternoon, and um, I, I'd been watching your work, obviously, in advance of, uh, of meeting, and the work is amazing. It's amazing, and there's so much of it, and it's so diverse, and yet it's incredibly unified. And then you sent me the clips of, of the, the pieces that you particularly like. They're stunning. Um, so uh, I'm worried that we're not going to get through okay. this. So I want to show them. Well, let's play one. Uh, so um, I thought we'd go uh, chronologically and start with American Horror Story. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. Mike is queued up on Mad Men. Although I do have Oh, you're queued up on Mad Men, right? Is that I was I going to save that. I can queue up the other one. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You're queued up on Mad Men. Will you, will you talk us through... It's a clip anyway. Is it? Okay. <laughs> um, will you talk us through your relationship with Mad Men? I know you've you known Matt for a long time. Um, has everybody seen Mad Men? Yeah, or have you been living in a hole in the world? <laughs> um, so, will you talk just? To, I, I just want to um, tease them a little bit more before we show them the okay. uh, Will you talk to us about uh, about um, starting work as a director with Mad Men and how that? Uh, I started in the second season. I started before when Matt finally got to make Mad Men. He had me come in and help him cast because he hadn't had a lot of experience directing actors, and he wanted to have someone there who he trusted who had more experience. So. I was in the casting session, so I knew all of the actors. I was involved with them from the beginning. I didn't direct the first year because AMC wouldn't have it. Understandably, I'd only directed three episodes of Becker, and uh, everybody wanted to do Mad Men. But then in the second year, Matt really fought for me. He told me that I had to make a short film, which I hadn't made up until then because I didn't really want to just make one and send it out into the circuit, which is a perfectly fine thing to do. But I felt like I needed to have a direct reason to do it, and then I would know what kind of short to make. and. You know, so when I knew that it was for Mad Men, I made it short that would be much longer than, you know, it wouldn't do well in festivals. But I thought, well, these people are only, they're going to look at it anyway, because they have to, because Matt's forcing them. So I might as well make something that I like. So I made it, and, uh, and I didn't send it to any festivals. Um, but I did do uh, a short, and I convinced Lionsgate and AMC to begrudgingly allow me to direct. That's amazing. Um, so you got Mad Men by making a short. That's yeah, phenomenal. Well, 
true. I mean, they didn't actually pick the short, you know, from obscurity, but it was Matt forced it down their throats, and they were like, all right, I, if you really want to, you know, but it's on you if he screws it up. And so, uh, but it went well, and everyone was quite happy with it. And then I was able to direct from the second season on. Okay. I would do two every year. The first season, I did, the second season, I did one, and then every year after that, I was able to do two. Wow. Okay, so. let's let's have a look okay. at it. So this is from the Beautiful Girls. Um, I don't know if you remember this. It's season four, and what's been going on just in this clip is uh, Peggy's very upset with her boyfriend, or not boyfriend, a guy who's trying to be her boyfriend. Abe later becomes her boyfriend. He's written a. Uh, a uh, essay called Nuremberg on Madison Avenue <laughs> about how bad uh, advertisers are and she tears it up and says I'm not a political person and she's upset and she goes and uh, she goes in and this is when uh, Don's secretary because he had relations with his previous secretary Joan very wisely said we're going to give you Mrs. Blankenship who's an elderly woman who's been with the company forever and used to be uh, Burt Cooper's to uh, try and keep him in line can we lose the overhead lights? Does anybody know how to do that? Yeah, that'd be it's nice. a space that we're not normally in. Sorry, Mike. It's all right. It'll live better. It's on our own here. I don't have any. Okay, don't. Sorry. Don't. Um, I just go. I'll go downstairs. All right. Well, we can start it while it goes. <clears throat> so Don is in the middle of a pitch meeting with the Fillmore brothers, who are mechanics. This has been going on for quite a while, and it's been, they're tough to deal with. It's been going on for a long time. His daughter, Sally, has shown up at work unaccompanied. She just sort of ran away and decided to go to his office. And so he's put her in the office. This meeting that he's in keeps getting interrupted. And here we go. Hopefully. Pretty anticlimactic. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's building up. Um, the, uh, the aesthetics of Mad Men are so beautiful. And, uh, <coughs> oh, here we go. Okay. I guess I read you wrong. Huh. It's really good, I saw it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, is it because it's HD that it's, uh, that the, the, um... Well, it's... You look so earnest. I need your word that you'll destroy that. Strange. Oh, no, I don't understand. Uh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it is peculiar, isn't it? I mean, it's a downloaded thing. Well, maybe we'll try a different one. Okay. <coughs> <coughs> well, here's a, if this works, this is from American Horror Story. Hmm. Yeah, I think it, it's possibly, was it, uh, was it working on your laptop? We didn't get very far, I had only, I was only trying to share things from Netflix, but you know, we can queue that up. If you and Mike want to keep talking, I can queue that up on I can set up. Netflix. Sure. Uh, but let's, do you want to try another? Or I can try another. It looks uh, like it might be. Um, yeah. Is it because it's HD? Is it? So that's only my theory. Oh, okay. Quick time. Maybe this is 
It's another attempt. Oh, yeah. We can drop into the LC as well. Yeah, good idea. Ha! Uh -huh. Lower quality, but you get the idea. Blanking check. Blanket chip, are you alright? It's blanket chip. It's blanket chip. reputation as a place for professional mechanics, we can actually attract men of all types. So it's something like Fillmore Auto Parts for the mechanic in every man. And although it seems immaterial to you, the Fillmore brothers like it. Unanimously. What was that again? Fillmore Auto Parts for the mechanic in every man. <laughs> My mother made that. Can we get your signature? I'm the president. me is extraordinary about that is that the, the tone and the feel of it quite apart from you know the, the obvious uh, fantastic uh, sense of comedy timing <laughs> that's there uh, but but the fact that it, it feels like a Hitchcock movie 
uh, and the framings and the way that the action is taking place in deep space, like it doesn't feel like TV. Was that something that was very conscious for you? Yeah, I mean, it was something that we wanted to make sure that it was rooted in reality, or it wouldn't make, I mean, you don't want to just make fun of some poor woman dying. Um, but also it is a conundrum and a comedic situation, of course, and she's an important character. And um, I think it was kind of, I was very happy with the way we were able to manage the tone of it because it is very difficult, you know, to pull something like that off without it just being pure comedy or pure, you know, just, I don't know what the other one would be. but uh, Grizzly. Just a failure, <laughs> I guess. So uh, we were able to, it was nice, and the actors are so good that they're able to maintain their emotional tone um, because they're different, especially in the beginning. You know, there's Caroline's crying, and Peggy is just a little, I like how she does, when she touches her, she wipes it off and she's not really the most sensitive person you know and it's nice to see how they all are um, but it's also nice that they don't gravitate toward each other which I find tough as a director if you're in a group scene sometimes the actors will start to think well I'm not getting any jokes here I'm just crying you know and maybe I can start to head over that way and then you kind of get a little bit of a, a mess of emotions so in a case like that I think it's more important to man it like a ship where it's like you stay over there, you know, and you stay over there, and you you know have a good time and do what you all their wonderful performances do, but uh, and I think it was also there's a moment there where where you see Don Draper not knowing what to do when she says should we call the ambulance and he, and you don't often see Don in that situation and I think that was kind of a nice leveler to just sort of say he's affected by it everyone's affected by it and even though there's all this comedic stuff around it and just a second and yeah, Sally yeah. in the room and everything and I think the writers on that show were very good at being able to to navigate a very difficult tonal scene and well whatever but the, the, the tone of the direction just strikes me as, uh, as extraordinarily well handled yes. can I just ask a question mm -hmm. in following up what Nyasa said um, just the visual presentation of it I didn't get the sense that there was a master shot of, of course there's a master shot mm -hmm. but it's not it's not the opening shot of the scene no um, when you're planning the whole thing, my, the difficulty that I would anticipate is to maintain the direction of the actors, because a lot of it is single shots and two yes. shots, so you're breaking up the performance. How do you keep it going? Well, this is something that we just really had to work out. This was more setups than we usually do, and it was, um, this was just one that was, it was more technical mm. directing than normally happens on Mad Men, because there was just no way to do it without an extreme shot list that we couldn't really vary from, you know, it was just, it had to be that way. And uh, they were, they're all just very good. I was able to say things like, you can't notice it until then, you know, because we see Ken notice it when Don's writing because I felt it was important to maintain the point of view. This was a time when I was getting really into point of views <laughs> and their points of view. And they, uh, and I really enjoyed, it all sort of worked out and it all actually timed out the way that it plays here. It's like it, a dance. Yeah, and it wasn't, I mean, like that shot of Dr. Faye noticing could have been anywhere. We could have just stolen it from the scene, but it was something that it was all worked out so that everybody knew what they were doing. And like I said, they're very good at maintaining what we agreed on. And of course, keeping it energetic and, you know, it, it doesn't become rote or anything, but it is something like you've really got to stick to this on this one. It's just going to all fall apart. So we had kind of the big master over them through the windows into the action that's going on and we had back into it which we didn't use as much of course except for the one sort of joke payoff of you know what about them and they're kind of laughing in there and, and it's always uh, 
Matt Weiner's one who will always wait for the joke. It's a policy of his. Almost always he'll, if he has a good joke, if it's really good, he'll almost always put it in. And uh, even, which is evident in a scene like this. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people would think that the gravity would be corrupted by comedy. But and, there's a kind uh, of truthfulness to that though, isn't there? Yeah. It's the way life is. And I thought Elizabeth Moss, I mean, there's nobody better to deal with it in the first place of like, Miss Blankenship, you know, <laughs> you can't just sleep here. <laughs> and then uh, to get into, and to have her reaction be not <laughs> just sadness, you know. She doesn't really know the woman that well. It makes perfect sense. And she finds it kind of funny when uh, when Joan is trying to pull the blanket up and, you know, someone would find that funny. Yeah, 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 it's cute. <laughs> and if it was yeah. only her and not Caroline back there crying, which I, we talked about in the, in the, when Matt and I were discussing it before, I was saying I really think she should be crying. And uh, someone's got to be there to keep that alive. And she's kind of blocked by Joan, which was intentional, so that you don't really, she doesn't overwhelm the scene. And Joan writes kind of both lines of being sort of funny and like, okay, get a man. And of course, Pete Campbell is the punchline to that because he's <laughs> <laughs> the man they get. <laughs> can, I, can I just ask? Sure. Did you storyboard it? And can you remember? I did not. Oh, wow. No. And how many hours did it take? Or would you that remember? Was, that was long for us for a sequence. That was about eight hours. Whole but day. it wasn't the full day. No. We oh. shoot 12 hours at least. Jeez frequently up to 14. It was not, we had other things going on that day. It wasn't just that, actually. Well, that was just, just one of the things. Sorry. Sorry. So you're talking earlier about your guy, the guys in college where you saw them, they were, they were drawing <coughs> actors, but they weren't actually stepping in. And so say in that situation there, you uh, say that she's not crying, he's not doing the freaked out part, and she's not laughing. Can you explain your process when you step in and maybe tweak that or well, that was a fortunate situation that I'd worked on the show before and the actors all knew me. And it was, I had talked to them about it being kind of a different situation than normal. Normally, if it's a scene, especially with Elizabeth Moss or Christina Hendricks, uh, these people are, they're all wonderful actors. And so when you get to do just a two-hander scene between them, you might end up with a different um, scene than you expected when you were going in. And this was one where I just had to say, this isn't one of those times. Because they all, we have a good working relationship where... I love working with all of them, and they could do, most of them could, you could do a benign line, like, here's this water, and you could shoot it, you know, 50 times and get really interesting takes every time. And I enjoy that, and I let them do that, they know that I like that, and then this was one where it was just kind of like, it's just not gonna work, we're gonna be here forever, and we're gonna fail. So, you just gotta And that's be because you were on this tonal tightrope the whole yeah. way, right, okay. Yeah, that was one where there wasn't a lot of improvisation even mm. emotionally. There's no improvisation on that. <laughs> in the lines, it's somewhat famous that uh, the lines are the lines and that's it. Um, but there's emotional improvisation. There's frequently scenes that go in a way that you didn't expect. And do you encourage that? Yeah. Oh yeah. L like ask the actress to switch it up and change Absolutely. it around. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Just to um, go back a bit, when you were casting, uh, when you were involved in the casting, this is my time to ask the question, you said that you you worked with a lot of actors. Did you bring in many of the actors to Mad Men from the five cent five dollar a day plays, or did you? Uh, no, I brought them in to audition. I didn't yeah. cast them myself, right? But I brought them all in. I made sure that the casting directors were aware, and there were some who did get to have some minor roles. Um, no, none of the regulars came from that, but there are some that, that made it in. Shall we stay with Mad Men? Run another Mad Men clip. Sure. Mad Men clip. I have um, 
that the, all the ones that you showed me are absolutely stunning. The crash is amazing. I see you have that there. Yeah, but this is the one that wasn't working. So. Oh, is it? Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I think that just glitches out. Okay, sorry. I asked for the wrong thing. No, I think I've got it right here. Yeah, hey. So this clip, this was going to be basically an antidote after American Horror Story, because American Horror Story is very cutty, and uh, and that last sequence was actually somewhat cutty. But, I mean, Mad Men's very stately, and it, it was sort of, we edited where we needed to. And, uh... So you can think about this one retroactively after we Sorry, see some I've of the more, I've uh, the, show the more flashy business from uh, from American Horror Story. But this is just a quick little scene that I really like that um, I'm sure many of you have had experience with where you have to time something out with actors on. The majority of it is basically one shot and it was kind of something that I wanted to go on for a long time. and. I spoke with them about it's going to be a long ride. Technically, they're writing down 17 floors. And the story is that Don has had an affair with this woman, and in this episode, he, uh, the whole office gets shot up with amphetamines, which happened a lot back then. They sort of send around a Dr. Feelgood guy, and he, which was based on a real guy who killed Kennedy's photographer, actually, with an injection. Jesus. Um, but anyway, amphetamines. while he's on that, he becomes even more obsessed with her and kind of embarrasses himself about the lengths to which he's willing to go to try and win her back, and she's saying no, and then the next day, he's all haggard throughout the episode, and the next day he comes back looking like Don Draper, and uh, she lives in the floor below him, and this is after uh, he's kind of really embarrassed himself, and she thinks he's gonna be even more embarrassing. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna start it with uh, full screen. How are you? Busy. Beautiful. So here's my question for you: the yes. the the confidence, the the directorial confidence of that beautiful single shot of just allowing the actress to respond to one another. Uh, it's gorgeous, and I think it, it plays so beautifully, doesn't it? There's so much storytelling in that. Um, were you at any stage under any pressure to either cut it or uh, or change it? It was all I gave him. I talked <laughs> to him before and said. I don't really see this as a single kind of thing. We did have the single of her, which we see right here, 
but that was only prompted by his exit. And I, that was a case where Matt agreed, and I held him to it and just said, look, we've got these two magnificent actors. There's no reason why we're going to be screwed unless I screw up the timing. And Matt has confidence in me and my timing, so I was able to... I mean, we did a few different takes where it was a little bit of a shorter ride, a little bit of a longer ride. Um, this was somewhere in the middle. It's, a, it's, it's not something that you see very often on TV. Uh, and it's, it's something that I've noticed a lot in, in, in your work on Mad Men, this fantastic confidence in just holding the frame uh, and allowing the action to unfold between the actors. And uh, I, I think it's fabulous. And I wonder uh, how strong you have to be to, uh, to fight off um, the, uh, the urge from other people to, uh, to keep it moving. Uh, you, in that case, I always felt like I knew the tone well. I felt that Matt fought for me for a reason and that if I was going astray, he would let me know. And if not, then I was just going to keep doing what I was doing. And um, you really have no time on Mad Men, as I'm sure you have no time on whatever projects you're working on. So it's not really much of a choice. You have to be very selective of what you're doing and, and stand behind it. And, uh, and they did know that that was going to be the only shot. So you warned everybody yeah. in advance. I said, we'll do a little bit to get you in the elevator, we'll do one on you when he goes out, but just so you know, it's going to be all this one shot. Fabulous for the actors as well. Yeah, and they're, well, they're great. <laughs> Sorry, somebody wants to ask. Yeah, the, what I love about it as well is, that, as you said, you're, you're living it in real time with the two actors, mm -hmm. but you're also hearing the sound of the lift, and it's mm -hmm. literally like a tremor between the two of them. I just, yeah. Did you, had you designed, had you thought of the sound effect oh, before? Yeah. Right. We do a lot of elevator work. <laughs> no, but I mean that that particular tremor. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very expressive. Yeah. So, just another question. Um, you were saying in advance you had said we're going to do this. We have a single and a single, mm -hmm. but then it's going to be done on a continuous shot. I was just reminded there's a lovely story about John Ford when he was doing How Green Was My Valley, and it was it was the wedding sequence, and then he he choreographed the whole thing in one shot, and I think the cinematographer or maybe an executive producer said, um, do you want to punch in for a close-up? And John Ford fam famously said, no, they'd only use it. Yeah. So the thing That's is, still you, the you told them in advance that yes. this is where we're going to, because if you give them the choice, they're going to use the close-ups. Yes. Right. Um, can I ask you, do you have to um, defend your coverage, or surely at your level? That's why you do. You because to bring something other than, than you know, the conventional coverage. Yeah, you kind of do. You have to defend your approach. It doesn't often come up. You hear about it through other people. You hear that someone's upset with the cut or something like that, and usually it all works out by the end. But I never really get confronted on set with someone saying, what about that? Usually because you're just working so fast. No one, a lot of people don't really know what's going on. And often so. I'm sure it's the rhythm of the piece as a whole because before that might have been quite a, you know, the office scene of quite something that demanded. Yeah, well, they're all on amphetamines throughout the, the yeah. you know, yeah. and, uh, and Don keeps having these flashbacks to his childhood, and he's just collapsed the night before. And there's a really weird sub-story where Sally, uh, there's a, a black woman who comes in and says that she's Don's grandmother. <laughs> and... Which could be plausible, and it just is revealed that they don't know anything about their father. And right. so, and that's kind of the point of it all. And the woman's very smart at doing this. And the reason that this story existed is this happened to one of the writers. And he was just like, I was a kid, I, I asked every question I could think of. And I know it sounds stupid, but I 
and a believer. You know, she was an adult, and then she just stole all the silverware and ran away. Jesus. Can, can I ask you also just about sometimes the irony of the one-shot approach, that it does take longer? It almost always does. 18, 19, 20 takes. And that sometimes you find, or do you, have you found yourself in the end of going, actually, it does work better with the cost. Or, do you know... I certainly have. It's tough on a TV schedule to perfect a one And so it's always a problem. If you're going to try and go for it, you know you're going to devote a lot of time to it. And it's often not exactly what you want. If it was a more generous schedule, I feel like most of them you could nail. And sometimes I will just sort of abort it and say, you know, let's just do something so we can get in. Oh, we've all been that soldier. Yeah, so. <laughs> do you think that the confidence that you have to do these shots comes from your theatre background? Because that's what, even in the, in in the last scene, it kind of I had got that feeling of like noises off or so, you know that kind of comedy and you know just the way you're hitting all those beats, it just felt like I can see that there, it feels to me like there, there's definitely a theatre background there because you have so much confidence to trust in the actors yeah, and the scene. Yeah, I think it definitely comes from that because it's an interesting thing in theatre, I'm sure some of you have directed theatre, where you're watching it, there's nothing you can do for the next two hours, you know, if you haven't got it right, or if they're going off course, you can't save them, you know, if they go up on the lines, there's nothing to be done, or if they're doing it all correctly and it's just not working and, you know, it's your fault, you know, so it's an interesting thing to know that you've made a performance that's so elaborate that they can make it seem spontaneous night after night, and then you feel like you've done it well. Which in theater, I tend to feel I'm more involved in than in here. In this, I can say Linda Carlini and John Hamm need almost nothing from me. I told her to look at him at one point. I didn't know that he was going to look up and be annoyed like that, which I loved. You know, So it's the kind of thing that you don't really need to talk very much. But it was something where I kind of wanted, the whole point of it seemed to be we want to shift the dynamic to Don Draper's back. He's no longer obsessed with this woman. And she's probably thinking, Good. You know, uh, really, you're not interested anymore. And uh, I think we kind of got that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Subtext. Yeah. Can I sorry, just ask another thing. One sure. of the things I think that's beautiful about Mad Men, and I just wonder about, um, in terms of all the, the different shows you work on. I mean, I love how um, it's so confident and clear in that it's it, it frames praying and the action happens within it, and it's you know shoots whatever its coverage is and, mm -hmm. and you cut it in that the camera isn't underlining anything in, in that show and in so many shows the camera does be it I don't know a track in or a full focus spoon or, feed the audience so emotionally or, or, or spoon or that that's a style choice you know uh, and, and so I, I just wondered in, I'm not as familiar with all of your work as as say NASA but is 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 that common to your approach or do you employ different approaches on the Shows, like something that would be quite different to Oh to yeah, I always, Should we show them something yeah, else? I'll show you one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I like about it, and it's one of the things that I feel like paid off a lot for me uh, by starting in the theater, yeah. because I would willfully... I know a lot of theater directors who are wonderful, who I'll go see all of their shows, and they have a similarity of, of tone in their work, and they just kind of work in that way, or film directors, you know... Well, uh, there's one... Uh, a theatre Irish book director who's really, really wonderful and was a great theatre director. And his first film was it was so um, interesting because he shot it all in close up because it was like <laughs> a theatre director. Oh my God! If you're right in there and the and the film was overwhelmingly in close up, it had its own power for that. And 
after that he came out again. But I, I thought that was such an interesting uh, bridge for a, for somebody coming from theatre. Whereas yeah. it's the exact opposite with Mad Men, where you stand back and let. I mean, I let let the best of everybody's work show. I mean, I think that's design and costume and performance and lighting. Yeah. Well, I felt like I worked hard to hone those skills in the theater, and then I felt like I had to just let them all fall away, because although they're very similar, um, they're totally different, and I felt like anything that was valuable from my theater work would just appear, and otherwise I should look at it like I'm just starting over, so, because I didn't want to be haunted by it. And Speaking of hauntings. So, here's a little different style. So this is American Horror Story. Just yes. before you play it, can, has everybody seen American Horror Story? I haven't. W would you mind just uh, situating it first, what, what it is and, uh, and what's American Horror Story changes its story every year. They throw it all away. They have almost always the same actors appear in different roles. And um, they have, it's kind of a rep theater company, basically. It's obviously horror-based, but the tone, despite it being horror, is different every year. This is from the very first year. This is the first episode I did uh, for them. And this particular thing, you don't really know what's going on. You don't, you really don't need to know anything. This is just a... Okay, hang on a second. I just have to add to that because you're being typically unbelievably modest about this. So um, it's, uh, it's is it, am I right in saying that it's unique in that there is a repertory of extraordinary talented actors? Jessica yes. Lange, Joseph Fiennes, Chloe Savini, uh, John Voight. Yes? No, he's no. in Ray Donovan. Oh, sorry, he's in Ray Donovan. Um, but Kathy Bates, Angela Bassett, we have, I mean, it's unbelievable the people we have there. Sarah Paulson is, uh, they're all just fantastic actors. And there's a young gentleman named Evan Peters who's been in every year, and he's a terrific actor. And then each story is a self-contained story. So the actors are coming back week after week, playing completely different characters, different timelines. Yeah. So different time periods. Yeah, different parts of... It's all America, but it's different accents. It's everything is just completely different, it's and our shooting style idea. is very different every year. It's a, there's a similarity. There's a lot of kind of cutty, flashy nature to it because they want to keep the young kids awake. But um, <laughs> generally speaking, it is very different in the tone. The the first season was kind of the second season was very very bleak, and the third season was quite comedic mostly. And and the fourth we were actually more stately in the camera work and everything. We kind of fell away from we kept saying the word technicolor to each other so we were trying and nobody really knew what we were talking about so we saying, like, yeah let's do more technicolor so uh, that was a much more stately year for us in every way but this is from the first season it's the first episode that I directed um, this was a storyboarded sequence and it was the first episode that I directed for these people and when I showed up this was in the middle of the shoot I showed up and said where's John the DP and, uh, and my AD said here's Joaquin <laughs> and I said, what? And they had replaced the director of photography in the middle of my episode, and I had no warning. And I literally showed up that morning, and I had a storyboard with a ton of shots, and I was like, well, hello, Joaquin. <laughs> we got a work cut out for us here. <clears throat> and these, these are all day players um, in this sequence. Does Tate Langdon live here? He's my son. What, what has he done? All right, make entry.
Seen it, the, the guy shot him in the freaking skull. Who's doing this? I, I don't know. We need to get the hell out of here. Please go.
are really interesting in that. Uh, did you storyboard that? Yeah. Because all the framings are, are fantastic and, and full of tension and that uh, the unknowability of both the, the people who are being shot and the shooter. Yeah. So. And was yeah. it an editorial choice at writing or at your level never show a, never show a shooting? I had talked to, the, there was really no instruction. They just sort of, they wrote, you know, he shoots this guy. Okay. And I thought, I don't want to do this you know I mean I thought it kind of glorifies it more you know it seems like and of course there's as soon as I got the script I was very excited about it but it was also like what if one of these real shooters has this at home you know and I thought how can we make it terrifying and serve the story without hopefully you know glorifying it or making it you know something that people would want to emulate so it was a it was a tough assignment but it was you know, and we were all, everyone on set was very concerned about these things happen in real life. We're using it, you know, we're, we are exploiting it, so how can we try and temper our exploitation of but it? But you never gave us his point of view. That's no. The way you neutralized that. You, you stepped away from the data. Yeah, that was a big choice, actually, to not, I didn't feel like it was good to ever, I felt like it would be uh, attractive if you were, yeah. if we put, I, I would rather be in the scared kid's point of view. Yeah. So, we did that. Yeah, it's very strong. And uh, what you're saying about the, uh, the the way that you've constructed it, the, the way that the shots work such that you never actually see any death. Yeah, uh, that was must important. Have been, uh, uh, it must have taken a lot of shot design to make that happen. It did indeed, yes. <laughs> it was uh, tough. And that library looks a lot like my high school library. <laughs> and that library was actually co-opted from Glee, because they make the same creators make that show. Okay, so totally very similar. We repositioned everything <laughs> to make it, I mean, it was the same materials. We, we redid the walls a little bit so it didn't, so the Glee fans wouldn't go nuts. But um, <laughs> it actually is the Glee library. Wow. <laughs> it's just moved around a little bit differently. And again, the sound design is obviously a crucial thing for you. Yeah, that one I actually made sure, they do of course final sound designs, um, but I made sure that I found the boot steps that I liked, and I hoped that they would stick with them, and they did. But the boots were very important. And uh, um, first of all, I want to ask you, um, how many minutes per day are you shooting on a show like that? On American Horror Story, it's at least 14 hours. Not 14 hour days. Lunch, and then an hour for lunch. Right. So okay. it's 15. How does the overall schedule differ between something like Mad Men and American Horror Story? <clears throat> They're somewhat similar. Uh, American Horror Story is kind of always off the rails. It's always really long. They shoot forever. Yeah. Mad Men is a little bit more, and as the years went on, we got a little better about it. But it was Mad Men used to be 14 consistently, and then we kind of got it down to about uh, 12. Okay. Not in terms of like duration, in terms of over weeks or number, number 
days. Days, um, this one, American Horror Story, you never know. That episode, I tried to be a good boy, and I, it was like 11 days, but they That's want quick. it to be nine days, always. Jesus. And uh, <laughs> it was impossible. We've never shot an American Horror Story in nine days in four years. Every year, though, including this year, I'm going to go back to it soon, and they still are like, you guys, seriously, nine days. And... Uh, <laughs> It's not going to happen. <laughs> it's never happened before. Maybe it'll happen now. Uh, but Mad selfish. Men was a different. We started at seven days, and then we went to seven days plus one uh, second unit day, which was basically a double-up day where you have two units working at the same time, and everybody goes crazy. Um, and then we went to eight days, and then we ended at nine. But you couldn't really go over on Mad Men, and if you did, it was known before. It was okay. going to be nine and a half or ten days or whatever, and there was permission before, and you had to stick to it. And have you got an A camera and a B camera then when you're shooting that film? Yes, but on Mad Men, the B camera is almost always forced out of a shot. You rarely get to do them both. Mad Men always did have a stylistic choice of the close-ups were often a little off, a little wider eye line, and so you could almost always do a B camera on that. But most of the time, Mad Men is so... It's too bad I can't show you better quality. I'm sorry about that, because it is really so beautiful and yeah. so, you know... Yeah. And all of these shows are. And the same thing with... American Horror Story, the way that looked, I was so impressed with the DP who just happened to show up. He'd never worked for these guys either. So we were kind of in the trenches together of like, you think we're going to get fired? It's our first time. <laughs> and uh, it worked out well. Have you got more American Horror Story there? I do. Yeah. Let's show one of uh, the incomparable Jessica Lang. Oh, this is amazing. So this, um, this is in the latest season of uh, American Horror Story. It's called Freak Show, and it's set in a freak show. And um, all you really need to know is Jessica Lang, who you'll see shortly after this, has, is all about uh, her stage work and doesn't want to have anything to do with television. A shyster guy has shown up. She doesn't know he's a shyster, but supposedly he's an agent from Hollywood trying to bring her into television, and she wants nothing to do with television, and she's saying, the people love me, and it's all about that. Um, but Evan Peters, who you'll recognize as the murderer from the last thing, um, is not murdering in this one. He's a lobster boy, because they're all freaks from like old school uh, sideshow kind of freaks. He had like fused hands kind of thing. And uh, Angela Bassett, who you'll see, that's Evan and that's Angela, and she's hurt and the show's about to go on and they're sold out for the first time in a long time. And the reason is that Evan has performed a heroic act recently. So the whole town is there to sort of show their support and he's the reason that they're all there. But he's, you know, trying to deal with Angela Bassett here, and then you'll see Kathy Bates briefly, who's a treasure. Um, and she sends him out to keep everything going. And then uh, Elsa Mars, who's played by Jessica Lang, is she thinks the headliner. She always has been the headliner, but everyone's really there to see Evan. So it makes her reconsider things. Mars. It's a thought of 
Beautiful. Can you talk to us about uh, about how you constructed that? It's obviously it's a it's a completely different tone of voice that you're using yeah. there. Well, that I mean, you're first of all you've got Jessica Lang, and you can't really do any better than that, and David Bowie. <laughs> but um, the main point of the scene is obviously that it was a breakdown, and this was something that was always very vague in the script. It was clear that she, I couldn't get an answer from the creators. I don't have as an open a relationship with these people as I do on Mad Men. And so I couldn't get an answer from them to how much they wanted. It was just sort of scripted. She goes out and sings a song and fails. And I was like, well, what song? What do we do? And they said, you know, just work it out. And so... Uh, how great. That was her... <laughs> yeah, and that was her song. She'd already started the... Uh, in the pilot of... Or the first episode of this season, she sings that song successfully. And so that's kind of her song. Her name's Elsa Mars. It's Life on Mars. And so I thought, well, we'll do that and we'll fail and we'll just see how it goes. And it ended up working out almost exactly as I thought. And that was a, we had a camera operator that I'd used in Glee, or I mean the normal Glee camera operator. They flew out to do some musical numbers and we all did sort of musical numbers quickly. And this operator is just amazing. He's probably the best I've ever seen. And so I talked to him about all of the things and some of the ideas were his and some were mine and we all kind of worked it out. And of course the director of photography, Michael Goy, is amazing. And uh, so that was actually something, it wasn't storyboarded, but it was something that worked out almost exactly as I thought. There's and that beautiful shot that starts with her and then goes down, and it, it's so uh, emotive. Yeah. Uh, tracking away. And, uh, so did you have the freedom to choose the song or not? That was, did you choose it? Yeah. I did, yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I sent it up the chain and said, well, I mean, it was already used. I didn't pick it out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It was already, it was her song established in the first episode, which I did not direct. But I thought, well, we should do her signature song that she blows. And it was always tough to know. And no one could give me a straight answer of like, is this supposed to be in her mind that she fails this badly or does she fail this badly? And they were like, you know, whatever, she fails. <laughs> and I was like, it's great. well, it's kind of the difference of do we have a moment at the end where everyone applauds? And it's all obviously in her mind and she just freaked out. And then uh, I talked to Jessica about it and they were like, just, you know, whatever, tell her whatever you want. And I was like, you can't tell Jessica <laughs> playing whatever you want. She's too smart and, and she's too good. You should empower her by knowing, by her knowing what the point is. And then she'll come up with fantastic ideas, you know. Just like in the previous scene that we showed about all the murdering, it starts with Jessica coming down the stairs with her hair. And that was the very first shot I ever did of Jessica Lang. And we were coming down the stairs and I just thought, God, as a present to myself, I should have shot her face first. It's Jessica Lang. <laughs> and, uh, but we had already been lit from another scene and so we just kind of threw her in and she was like, you're behind me? And I said, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, and I'd never met her, I'd never worked with her. It was my first day working with her. and. Um, and she's like, how big is the frame? And I said, you know, it's like here on your back or something. And she said, okay. And I thought she was just sort of annoyed, but she was just working out what to do. And so uh, she did all this great little hair acting yeah. and all these moments. That, and I just thought, God, you could point the camera at anywhere on that woman and you would get a performance. <coughs> she's a wonder. At the, at her performances in this are spectacular. And the funny thing was we were supposed to, the way that, because it was kind of all vague in the terms of what it was going to be uh, when we originally rehearsed it it was she was standing at the microphone and I had not seen the footage of the original thing I knew she did this song but I never saw the footage of it and because uh, they wouldn't let me see it and so uh, <laughs> and then right we're rolling I'm about to call action and she says uh, Michael I started this song on the rocket the stupid little rocket that she's on that gets wheeled out and I was like Okay, let's start there. Because <laughs> I thought, uh, true, I didn't know that, but we should definitely do whatever you did before. And I thought we would cut to the silent thing um, and do sort of slow-mo and everything once she gets to the microphone. But she starts singing there, and then I thought, well, and as I'm watching the very first take, the big master, I was like, well, now what do I do? Where am I going to go into slow-mo and silence so that we can really resonate the idea that she's blowing it? And uh, so I kind of figured it out in the middle of the first take. But when someone like Jessica Lang has a thought like that, you know, you're well it. suited to go with it. And she was completely correct. I mean, I would, it's her number. It's, you know, she should start on the stupid little rocket, <laughs> which I think is very funny and good, too. So it extended the sequence out then, did it? It did. It extended it a lot, which I was worried about. But I thought, well, I'm going to do it the way that I want to. It's Jessica. It, I doubt it's going to be cut but something's got to give because the scripts are always way too long. And that year the creator told me, don't worry about length. And I thought, you got a back alley deal going on. And he did. And so they aired them at whatever length they were. Wow, brilliant. So this episode aired at like almost an hour and a half, actually. So it sounds like this show is actually uh, very free in terms of what you bring to it. It is, yeah. You never know when you're going to get fired. I expect it to happen any time. I mean, I don't, I have not a very, I have no personal relationship with the creators of that show. When I went in to interview for it, I thought I was interviewing on Glee. I watched all the Glees. They had me watch the American Horror Story pilot, and I was like, that's amazing, you guys. And they kept talking about it, and I was like, 
how do I get this back to musical theater? You know, and like, and uh, then finally I just asked, is this about American Horror Story? Is this about Glee? And Brian said, did you think this is about Glee? And I said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, fucking agents. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, he asked me something, I don't remember, shortly after that, he asked me about Matt and how I deal with information or lack of information. And I was like, any information, whatever information I get, I consider to be enough. If it's a little bit, then I'll just extrapolate what I need. And if it's a lot, then I'll do that and extrapolate what I need from that. And then he literally got up and left. And I was like, so that was well, that, that, that was imagination. The firing or the hiring, hard to say. <laughs> Hopefully we'll know. <laughs> and fortunately I got hired. This shot. This is one of those wonder kind of shots that took forever. As you can imagine, the mirrors, all mirrors are a pain in the ass, as we all know. And when you put in this many mirrors, it's even worse. And when you have someone like Jessica, who's such a magnificent actor, you rehearse with her, but she might have a different idea by the time she comes back. And this was one where it's like, no, you gotta do it, please. <laughs> and then we ended up adjusting all the mirrors because she did something a little different when she sat down. It was, it was actually this. And so she was kind of looking up like this and looking at herself and being disappointed. And then she got there and she was like, you know, I'm over it. I'm, I, I blew it. I don't want to be like that. And I was like, no problem. <laughs> Let's uh, get about 19 guys moving these mirrors. <laughs> Can I ask you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a composer, and I'm wondering what's your interaction with uh, any uh, composed music in the... In this, it's very minimal. I mean, we use scratch track, so we have, you know, songs that we pick from, or music that we pick from other movies, but it's not composed yet, so we try and indicate to the composer the idea of what we want. And uh, and this one, I did make a note to uh, the editor that it always made me think of the Umbrellas of Schoenberg <laughs> for some reason. I don't really know why. And the composer did have a tune that kind of is reminiscent of uh, the Umbrellas of Schoenberg. I don't know how many of you know. Technicolor. That. It's Technicolor. Yeah, it is Technicolor. <laughs> and uh, it has that kind of, uh, there's a similarity. I think he kind of ripped it off based on that, which Kay. I love a good rip off. And in general, what's, what's, your, what's your, your own kind of uh, personal vision of music and sound? Well, I consume a wide variety of music because as a director, you never know what you're going to need. You know, sometimes it's jazz or sometimes it's Nirvana. Or not that anyone can pay for Nirvana, but you know, it can be a very different kind of uh, tone. So I. I listen to a lot of different music. Says the man who paid for David Bowie's yeah. Life on Mars. <laughs> yeah. Well, they had already paid for it. I yeah. thought, well, can't do that much to do it again, right? <laughs> um, do you have more of this? Uh, um, there are a few more clips I that you do. sent me that are amazing. Let's see what they've got. Oh, yeah. There's. Well, we can do another American Horror Story. Let's do that, shall we? Do, are we running out of time? Are we no, no, we're okay. We've got uh, we've got 45 minutes. Can I just ask, Mike, when you're lining that up, can I just ask about the white gloves? Was that your idea, or was that costume? Because I thought they were very sad. Uh, that was costume. Really good. Uh, we should we talk have about incredible costumes. costume designers, especially in American Horror Story. Uh, it's truly amazing. How do you get over working with bad people? That's an excellent question. Sorry, what was that? How do you get over working with, with bad people? People who, you know, because so much of our work you fall in love with your DOP and it's lovely talking, hearing you talk about, you know, being really joyous about, you know, the 
other HLEs and your obviously collaborations with them. But you know, we all have the horror stories about just the editor, the DOP, the, you know, the really bad experience. Sure. I mean, and I've never had the courage to do what the producer suggested, which is fire the person that's kind of this. So like, how do you get through? If I was in the position to fire, I would fire them. I think there's, um, first of all, at least in Hollywood, there's no real shame in being fired. So I, I would be much more reserved about it if it was a regular job and people, when you fire them, it's a disaster. But generally in Hollywood, it doesn't matter at all. Like the gentleman who was fired, the DP that got replaced, I loved that DP and I loved the new one. And the only reason he got fired was because that show, it was the first season and it was wildly over budget. And so they had to show a body to the network and the studio. So they fired him. And then we all knew the next one to go would be the first AD, and he was. He was great, you know, but it was just a situation where he got fired. And so, at least in Hollywood, the general climate of that kind of termination doesn't really blight you at all. It's, uh, so I would definitely, if I had the power, and I don't really have the power on these TV shows. I could go to the creators and say, this guy's bad, and certainly someone like Matt Weiner would take that to heart and honestly anyone else if I talked to Ryan Murphy who's the creator of the show and I said this guy's bad news he would take it to heart and make his own decision um, but I think I remember seeing uh, an interview with Kenneth Lonergan who uh, is a great writer and director and he did when he was doing his first movie you can count on me he was talking about there was one person on set who we never named I don't know the position or anything and he said, uh, this gentleman was just negative. I could just tell he was undermining me. He was poisoning the crew against me. And I just didn't have the heart to fire him. And I just thought it was bad news. And today, I would definitely fire him. And I think that it's a good thing to do to make sure that the, I mean, it's a weird gypsy life we have anyway. And if you're going to go out into the woods with a bunch of lunatics, you want to have the right ones. You know? so. <laughs> Can we explore that a little bit more? Because um, you're, you're uh, working on these dramas that sell all over the world that are hugely valuable and obviously your role is central, pivotal uh, into making them a success but at the same time uh, at least the first time you do it there's, there's the possibility that you're being parachuted into a team of people who may already have creative relationships and while it's never yeah. going to be as bad as Becker <laughs> <laughs> Is that, is that something that, that's difficult to negotiate? That is very difficult to negotiate. It's, uh, and I tend to be a fairly quiet, reserved person, especially when I'm around an existing group of people who are working very well together. And I just kind of ride it out and hope for the best. And usually by not too long into it, I tend to win people over. But I think I'm kind of surprising to a lot of crew members. I think there's, and again, everybody wants to direct, so it's, you really have, there's a lot of like, okay, show me kind of attitude. And, and there should be in terms of the actors because they're the ones who are going to look like a bunch of idiots. If at the end of the day, if one of these TV shows sucks, they're going to look terrible. No one's going to remember me. You know, I can even get away with it and blame someone else or whatever. But if they suck, they suck and that's it. And so it's understandable that they would test you and that they would have opinions about what you're doing. And they would test you. I find mostly they test you in terms of your knowledge of the show. Have you watched this thing? Do you know my character? It's basically like that. And they'll test you down to... I always like it when they when they ask about a certain scene, or if they mention a certain scene and you can mention a little detail about it, and then you just kind of see them light up and think, oh, thank God, he knows what the hell's going on. Because you might be a good director, but if you don't know that show, then what are you doing there? You know, 
and sometimes schedules are hard and you don't have enough time or you get the job late in the game and you're on another job or whatever and so I always try and find a way to really be involved enough to watch what they're doing right. so that you can put them and at ease. And how do you deal with self-doubt when you don't know? Do you know, are you honest and say, you know, I don't know um, or do you? Um, usually I find that I make a decision. If I really don't know the answer to something, I'll just trust God and make a decision and hope for the best. And it usually works out. Is it better to make the wrong decision and at least go down that avenue and have a chance to turn back around again than make no decision and waste If you're willing to turn back around, I think it is. Yeah. I think we all know if you turn back around too many times, you're going to lose everybody. But I don't think there's really any shame at all in saying, you know what, guys, I blew it, I'm wrong. Sorry, we got to reshoot the master. I know we're back in on this, but I was wrong. As long as you don't keep going back and forth, I think that everyone can understand. They might, you know, laugh at you a little bit, but they're not. I think they can understand and they'll forgive you. As long as you, because that also shows that you know what you're doing. Because nobody shot these scenes before, you know, and you're all saying, like, this is going to take four hours or whatever, and here's how we're going to do it, and you're hoping for the best. But if you make a mistake and you can resolve it, I think people have respect for that. If you're truly just ambivalent all the time then and you keep going back and forth and everybody's gonna you're gonna lose them but I think that people can say I've done that before where I've reshot a master uh, and I had to go back and the whole crew had a feeling of as much as they might kind of laugh at you a little bit they do have a feeling of you know there was something wrong with that let's do it right now and then then the work is actually faster you've already done it for one thing <laughs> so you can just put the lights back where they were but it's generally, if, if you get people on board with the tone, and I'm incredibly blessed and fortunate enough to work on these amazing shows, and so generally there's a feeling on set of, this is one for the ages, I've worked on a lot of shows, but this is one I'm gonna show my grandkids or something, so people wanna go the extra mile. Okay. I've fortunately not been in the trenches of the people just punching the card of like, yeah, here we are again, you know, this show sucks, but got a mortgage, you know. So, have you had a bad DP? I have not had a bad DP. I've had a couple of days with DPs. Yeah, I guess I have. Not really <laughs> bad, but a bad relationship with them where I really rely on my DPs. It probably comes a lot from the fact that I came from theater, as I said, and I tried to catch up with lenses and all the other things that we need to know. And I think I do have a little bit of a thing on my shoulder about I don't know it as well as I should. So I'm always eager to involve the director of photography in all of the choices. And I'm glad because I do feel like they respond to that well. As long as you know what you want tonally, I don't think any director of photography resents you for not knowing lenses or whatever. I mean, now I'm much more adroit about that thing, but uh, those that whole arena of things. But there's the director of photography on American Horror Story, Michael Goy, used to be the president of the uh, ASC, who's and he's incredible, and he's one of these freaks who sleeps like two or three hours a night every night and that's it and he's fine so he's watched every movie in the world he knows everything American Horror Story shoots on film not that you can tell from this but uh, it does shoot on film and so there's a lot of processing that can go on that I frankly didn't understand at all when we first started talking about it and he kind of would ask me these questions of do you want to do this and he would talk about a process and I really had no idea what he was saying and I was like uh and he said, do you want to see a test? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. So he'd show me a test, and uh, then I would understand it. And now I'm a little more savvy about it, but I feel in my experience with the particular directors of photography that I've worked with, 
who pretty much are all amazing, other than a couple of day players, um, on like a couple of second unit days where I'm in the position, my least favorite position as a director is to really line up the exact shot that I want. And to, I always have that, and I always have a shot list in my mind or storyboards. But I feel like if it's only as good as what I can imagine, it's not going to be good enough. You know, you want to get the participation of a true professional who will say something about, I mean, this particular shot I had the idea of, but the actual execution of it, the placement of the mirrors, and I just said, I want to see Jessica fractured everywhere. And my original idea was actually just to have pieces of her in mm -hmm. all these mirrors and to have an eye here and the mouth and all this and just go. And, uh, and the DP came over to me and said, you know, we can get her whole face in all of them. And I was like, wow, I can't beat Jessica Lane's face, so <laughs> let's go with that, you know, as opposed to that would have been a more directorial choice, I guess, of like, here's the story. She's all fractured because she right. failed. Yeah, yeah. But this is so much better. For, in my mm -hmm. personal taste, I would much rather see Jessica Lane five or six times. And the friend, story is still in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what about the relationship with writers, Mike? Can you tell us, like, it, literally in terms of the set, like, where are they in relation to your monitor and how do you, how do you lean on them and how, what do they ask of you? Because I guess there's always a writer on the set of these shows. There generally is a writer on these sets. Um, on Mad Men, there was always a writer. Whoever wrote the episode, unless it was Matt who wrote the episode, and then Matt uh, would empower another writer to cover for him because he was too busy. Um, and Matt would come down on occasion. He would come down a lot for other shows, but not really so much for mine. So I would be left with whoever the writer is. And I just try and assess them quickly and see if they're really um, going to be helpful in terms of um, asking them things. or should I just keep blazing through and then you'll say something, you know, if it's wrong. And so it kind of depends on my general opinion of them. I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm very judgmental of writers and instantaneously because uh, I find some writers, I'll listen to everybody and give them the respect of it, but some of them, some of them have come up with fantastic ideas where I'll think, God, you're right, I didn't even think about that color, I should go in talk about it and others I'll say I'm gonna go in and talk about that and then I'll go over to the actor and just say you look great <laughs> and then come back and then afterwards they're like nice <laughs> did it well and then because a lot of times they don't really know what the note is they're trying to come up with a note or something and it's just sort of like you go over them and say like what are you doing Saturday yeah well I'm gonna be a champ all right and then uh, come back and and then they think the note has been given which I think is a wise way to deal with idiots or people who aren't particularly savvy about uh, affecting a proper change. They might be very good writers, but it's a very different skill set to be able to be on set and say what's wrong. And then it's another skill set to be able to say how should it be different. And then hopefully the director's skill set to affect that change. You know, There's a lot of people, I do feel a lot of people are very smart about it and they can say, you know, he need, he's too angry there or something, and, uh, and they might even be exactly right, but I think that our job is to be able to say, okay, how do we get rid of that anger, you know, or temper it in a, slant it in a different way or something, in a way that they feel empowered, and there's a lot of, I find a lot of writers to be very uh, crude in their um, terminology to actors, and unnecessary about their um, want to have the actors understand all the colors of the scene. And so they might say, like, does he know that it's, you know, his father was an abuser and all this? And it's like, he probably does, but uh, 
this particular actor I've worked with, you know, maybe for an hour, or maybe for several episodes, but that's not how he works. So going up to him and saying, like, I want to feel the haunting of your father in the scene, you know, and you're like, God, it's in the writing, you know, it'll come or it won't, and their understanding of it is totally irrelevant sometimes, and other actors really do need to understand all of that, you know, so you have to kind of make your judgments about them and juggle what's going on with that as well as the writers, and sometimes they have terrible ideas, I find. Or start to describe the story rather than... uh... Yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of writers really want people to understand exactly what's going on in the scene, which is important for the audience to understand, but not necessarily essential for the players to understand. Sometimes it is, but other actors... Christina Hendricks is one very smart woman. She plays Joan on Mad Men. Um, Extremely smart woman, extremely good actor, and uh, Matt Weiner has a bit of a proclivity to try and get people to understand all the colors going on. And he'll sometimes talk to her about all of these things, and I'll see her sort of nodding, and I'm, and I know that I'm, I'm gonna go in there right after, because uh, she'll just, I'll see her sort of blank, because she knows her instrument, and she can understand all of these things. It's not like she's not intelligent; she's extremely intelligent, but she's intelligent enough to know, like, I'm gonna put the blinders on while this guy's talking to me, because it's not useful. Yeah, there was one scene where she promotes um, Don Secretary Dawn. Black Dawn, as we call her. <laughs> um, she promotes her, and then uh, Dawn says, uh, I don't care if you hate me, or if everyone hates me, as long as, uh, as long as you like me. And then Joan looks up and says, we'll see. And she said, well, is this about me saying, we'll see if I hate you, or we'll see if you can deal with this? And it's one of these great lines that really is all of these. It's like a, a triple or quadruple entendre. And Matt went in and said all these things and everything, and the, and I went up and just said, just do it. It doesn't matter, you know. Like, just do it naturally, and I'll tell you if we're not getting it. And then, of course, the first take, she gets them all. And she was like, did I do it? But it's the thing where she's just one of those who goes into her little acting room and it's not a cerebral and it, thing. And she's not a technical. She's a very technically adroit actor. She knows exactly where she is, and she can match and all of these things. But on her emotional engine, I think she just lets it go. And I don't think she really has a whole lot of recall about what she did. And she's magnificent, so it really doesn't matter, you know? And it is something like, well, you hit all the colors, so we're fine. And she'll say good. But then, you know, she can talk to you a second later about an extremely complicated subject. She's a very, very smart woman. But she yeah, she separates that part of herself yeah. from her acting, as far as I can tell. I mean, she might tell you something different, and another director might tell you something different who's worked with her. but. That's my experience with her. So you've got a writer on Mad Men, for instance, which is yeah. obviously a terrifically authored piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a writer on set who's essentially sitting at the monitor um, considering the kind of overall arc of the series. That's, yes, and that's they might the say, reason. I find that the best writers on set, the way they behave the best, um, in my opinion, is to let you do some work. As we, I'm sure we all know, a lot of actors won't give you a whole lot in the master and you're just kind of setting blocking. And once you start moving in, and once you've got a couple of takes of it, then if they have something that they're missing, and then they say that to you. Because as we all know, you might be building toward that depending on the actor, and it might be like, they're not gonna get this out of the gate. We're basically useless until take three at a minimum, you know? And then they'll understand that. But if you're getting down to the end of the close-up, or, or whatever size is actually going to be used a lot more than just geography, then I think it's, 
good of him to say something like, you know, I think she should be a little pissed off here because even though she's happy with her, she screwed her over yesterday. And it is like, right, I forgot about that, you know. So let's do one where it's a little bit, a little bit more reserved. And something like that to say, I'm not really getting a story point. But I think it is, I find the most injurious behavior of a writer is to start giving a ton of notes like on the first take of the master or anywhere in there. Or talking to the actors or talking loudly to me in a way that they know the actor can hear. And, you know, it's just Bad like, form. God, do, you, do you know the damage control I got to do now? <laughs> and what about something like this, where uh, where it, you're you're much closer to the authorship of it? Uh, in you... this, we we don't often have a writer on set on. About half the time, we have a writer on set on American Horror Story, but it's just such a crazy show that the producing of it, the actual production of that show, is just madness for some reason and always is. And so, and there's usually two units running at the same time, and so the writer has to go back and forth, and they don't really know what you've already shot. No one's really been told what you're going to shoot anyway. Like that, the school shooting thing, I storyboarded and I sent it in and they approved it, you know. But since then, everything I've storyboarded on that show, I haven't even sent to them. I've just sent it to the director of photography. And so they don't really know what you're doing. So they come back after half a day, you're toward the end of a scene, and they're like, how's it going? Great. Was he always this way? And it's like, yeah, it's pretty great. Take a look. And then they'll be happy with it. Or I've had versions of it before and... I think it's just important to make sure that, you know, as a director, you've just got to keep your own uh, vision at the forefront as long as it's informed correctly by whoever it should be informed by. If you wrote and directed the movie, that's one thing, but if it's something like this where you're working in tandem with someone else, then you have to be informed by them, I think. Or you're just going rogue and you're making an episode that's not that show, and that's not right. Can I ask a quick question about how you work with the actors? Um, you were saying, you know, first maybe should be more distressed. Do you actually give them that result? Or does it depend on, because I get a sense that you have a real sense of how each actor works intuitively, and you try to service their their process by how you direct them. Would that be correct? Or do you always give them kind of a result of being more distressed or less distressed? I do it completely differently for every actor. I, yes. The best advice I ever got, I mentioned that little theater in Oregon that I started at. Um, I assisted a director there which is much more of a mentorship kind of position than it's not an assistant director like we work with in cameras. Um, and he said to me the best piece of advice I've had, which is directing is learning seven million different languages. And when he said it, I was sort of like, huh, and then moved on with my life. But as I get older, I do feel like he's exactly right, and all the actors are completely different. And it, for me, it comes down somewhere between do you want to be told what to do because you don't trust your instincts, or do you want to have your instincts be responsible for your performance? And interference by the director is not desired. And it's almost always in a gray area somewhere in between, but I feel like you gotta try and make that call and stick with it or amend it. I remember I got to work with Elliot Gold on uh, Ray Donovan, and I gave him a note, and as soon as I said it, I thought, God, I didn't phrase that right. And it was something about, uh, he, was, he was mentioning, the first scene, the first line in the scene is him saying, how's your mother, to this person. And he was saying it really importantly. And he's never met this woman's mother, or this man's mother, and I thought, it's very, you're kind of overdoing this, you know, and I thought, well, what am I gonna say? And I said something like, 
it's, you know, I'm not saying it's like you're asking about the weather, but it's kind of, and he cut me off and he's like, it is not like the weather. It is a very, this is a Jewish man. I'm talking to a Jewish man, which is all about the mother. And he went on this whole thing. And I just sat there listening and I said, um, Elliot, I would like to respectfully withdraw my note. <laughs> and he smiled at me and he said, good boy. <laughs> but then he did change. It was not as important. So he got the message, but he it got was it. also it was a, yeah. a, a respectful interaction. And he you. got to show that he knows what he's doing. Not that I ever doubted it, but it was a point of just but like, about damn it. right, Mr. Gold, you know what you're doing, it's fine, you know? But maybe take a little off. Yeah, yeah. So just raising it was sufficient, in fact. Yeah, in that case it was. And he had to kind of show off a bit as well, and that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, again, I think if you that's the only note I've withdrawn, I think ever, actually, but certainly not with Elliot anymore. I mean, after that, it kind of gets... Once you can develop a shorthand, which can develop very quickly, or not at all, but if you can develop a shorthand. Have you ever not at all developed a shorthand? With an action? Um, it's terrible. I'm asking you all the bad things. I know you've developed fantastic rapport with I'm trying to every actor you've worked with. No, it's, I mean, it might not be the most satisfying rapport. When I give notes to John Hamm, I almost never complete the sentence, which is very unsatisfying to me. But I can tell when he knows what I'm saying because John is a wonderful man and a wonderful actor and uh, but is very serious about his work and he's extremely savvy about filmmaking so he knows exactly what you're doing with the camera he knows if it's an extraneous shot or anything and he's called me out a couple of times of like why do we need this and I was like well John we need it because of this and he's like okay but um, he didn't really see the reason at the point at that particular time and that's happened very very rarely um, but generally speaking with John I don't even finish a sentence. I'll say, so when you're over at the desk and you reach down, could it? And he's like, mm-hmm. And then I'm like, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I, hope, I hope he got it in some weird mind-held way. And then he does it. And he's also unsatisfying. He's satisfying because the result is fantastic, but he's unsatisfying in that I'll frequently just do another take with him, and he'll almost always do what I wanted him to do without saying and then I think he respects me because then I'll move on right I think that he'll I think a lot of actors really just kind of do need another take but they do get very frustrated if if it's like what are we doing you know you want something different we're just going again and then you can that's that's tough to do but sometimes that's exactly what you want of just something different yeah I think you only get a few of those though I think you generally get one of those per take I think if you give no note and just say, you know, I'd just like to go again, I think they'll normally say, yeah. And then if you do it a second time, they might do it, but then by the third, fourth, I think they they start to, I think actors are really likely to think that they're the ones who are ruining things. And so by not giving them information that's affirmative or negative, I think they'll just think like, what am I doing wrong? And that's a bad place for an actor. Can you just develop that? I mean, the tone of your voice has changed when you said, again, or what am I doing wrong? I mean, it, it's great to hear the stories, but how to solve the problem? That that is a problem. If the, if the actor is uncomfortable and the actor is tense, how do you solve the problem? Well, again, it's a very specific situation, sure. depending on what exactly is going on. And sometimes you can get saved by, if you, I, I really think all you can do is try and create an environment in which people can flourish. And, uh, and that 
they feel safe in in some way and if there's a lack of safety going on in some way then I think something has to be shaken up mm -hmm. and frequently I'll empower my AD and just say I need you to go and shake it up and especially if it's an AD that I've worked with before and they'll just say well what do you mean and I'm like go make a joke go do something do something funny and it's a terrible direction for someone to give but your AD has to be part of your body and I think that you have to I don't necessarily have the confidence that I can go and crack everybody up on set or something, you know. He can look like a fool, and it, it is sort of a fool, or she, you know. It's a bit of a gesture in the court, like, let me go out there with my flute and my funny hat and hope that something happens. And that kind of thing really does work. And then I think it can really change the tenor of the scene and the general set. And I think that I'll have something like that happen. Or if you're lucky, an actor will do it. Like John Hamm is kind of famous for couple of times there was one moment actually in that whole sequence with Miss Blankenship dying um, there was one point where everything was getting kind of it was getting a little not as creative as they would like because of what I was saying before about you've got to do this you've got to do that and uh, and it was a little atypical for the set that I'm running to be like that um, and then all of a sudden I start hearing some laughter and everyone's running over to this hallway and John's over there, and he's standing up, and he's leaning on this uh, this file cabinet, and he's writing something down, and kind of looking, and like, what? I'm looking down, and he's rolled his suit pants up to here, and just sort of, and it's really funny. He's still got his socks on and his you know fancy shoes on and everything, and he's just kind of like, what's going on? And everybody was laughing hysterically, and I thought, thank God for John Hamm because it really broke the tension of just slogging through the day because once you're doing something like that you're kind of just slogging through it people don't really feel as creatively empowered because it's it's more limited than usual let's uh i'm conscious of time here because we could keep you talking all night and i suspect you may want to get back to your holiday at some point um but uh, can we talk a little bit about post-production sure so you're collecting all this material um and uh you're obviously very focused when you're on set and you're obviously very relaxed and you're very flexible so you're collecting quite a broad range. You're collecting different colors of performances uh, and also with great precision the material that you're looking for. Um, and uh, in my innocence I presumed that uh, that you would have a, a, as much time as we do for working for instance on uh, a far lower budgeted UK drama. <laughs> um, will you uh, just talk us through what happens then when you get to the edit? Sure. So you have when you wrap you have three days after you've wrapped, during which the editor will assemble the editor's cut. That the director is the only person who sees the editor's cut. Technically, some people go back illegally, or at least against the rules of the guild, to watch the editor's cut if the creator wants to go back and watch it or something. But generally, uh, the editor presents your cut to you three days after you've wrapped. You have four days to work with the editor, and then you turn in your cut, and that's it. And the creator or the showrunner can do whatever they want and the showrunner will devise his or her cut and submit it to the network and to the studio, both of whom will have notes, and the showrunner will execute the notes or not, according to their liking. Some agreement is reached between the studio and the network and the showrunner about the final cut, and then that's it. But that means you can be significantly re-edited, which uh, has not happened to me, thankfully, but has happened to a lot of directors I know and it's perfectly within the rights of the creator to just do whatever they want. So we're I back mean, it's to your the footage, question of, of, the, uh, of the writer and that rapport with the writer. So obviously that's uh, it's central in the, in the edit room, is it? 
It is, but most of the writers on set are not going to be the creator or the showrunner, who can be different people. Um, but generally, you won't see the showrunner on set very often because they have so much writing, and then once you're shooting, editing to do, and all kinds of other things to do. So you don't see them except for perhaps on a sensitive scene or a big scene or something that you know they're really concerned about. Um, so there's... The writers themselves are an individual brood who I normally look at as um, potential employers. Because <laughs> they're lower level writers because they're sent down to set, but hopefully they'll have a pilot that I like and want to treat. <laughs> um, and I, of course, treat them as intelligent people who might have something very valuable to offer on set. So. Okay. And usually they're fun and interesting. So. so you must be working really long hours then in the edit. Or are you just yeah, and I try to watch dailies when I'm shooting. I've gone. I keep trying to figure out how to do this job. So sometimes I've tried to not watch dailies, which sometimes works, and then I usually watch dailies. But the four days of editing is so fast, so fast that you have to try and get ahead of the game so that you can, you know, be specific about what it is that's missing in the edit, or if you want certain shots or something. I'm not really a shot director where I don't. I'm not. I'm rarely in love with this job enough that. It has to be in a cut, so I, I'm You're a storyteller more than it. Yeah. <clears throat> I think that's a sorry. Just that that part of the process is a great example of good and bad. Yeah. But I mean, compared to any other any other part of the process, because there is such. I mean, are, are, is that your experience of such different tone differences or style differences? Are editors, you know, showrunner is really the person who Yes, and I've only had one editor that I considered not good. And that was really hard, especially with four days, because I really felt like, God, you don't get this at all. And I had to go in with him and babysit him and try and get it done, and it really didn't feel like at the end of the four days, it really, that was the, it always feels too short, but that was a time where I felt it was, it was pretty drastically, terminally too short because we just couldn't seem to get on the same page, or I don't know what it was, but there was something about it that we just couldn't seem to line up, and that was terrible. And it made me treasure all the other editors that I've been fortunate enough to work with, because I felt like there was a synergy that actually worked in the four days. I mean, most of the episodes that I've directed are remarkably similar. If you looked at my director's cut versus the final cut version, they're they're very similar. I've been really lucky in that regard, and if they sometimes cut it down to time, but now time seems to be less of a deal, at least in America. Like I was saying with Ryan Murphy airing this one in an hour and a half or whatever it was, it used to be no way in hell, but then it was like, what the, why? You're producing the show for your own network. If anybody can run it long, it's you. And that's what makes HBO and Showtime all these things great, because they're not like, it's 47 and a half minutes, and no matter how you do it. And so now that seems to be a bit relieved in cable, which is where I work, mostly. So, can I ask you, um, when you're, uh, ha, ha, what do you look for in a commission? What do you look for when you're, uh, when you're being off the script? Just I mean, I don't know the script that I'm going to direct, but usually you'll have a pilot if it's a new show, or you can watch the first season if it's, you know, or multiple seasons, depending on where it is, but I always just go for the quality of the story. Okay. And the, and the tone and the mood, and that will tell you whether the, the showrunner is going to be somebody that's sympathetic to your yeah. uh, aesthetics. Or I can, and now I've been around enough that I can, there are certain writers that I follow. The creator of 
Fargo I had been following for years because I had seen uh, scripts of his that, to hear him described, aren't that interesting, like a cop show about people who do unusual cases and, you know, like high school showing people 10 years after high school with a little bit before and they're all the typical, like, there's a jock and a, you know, pretty girl and the nerd and, and all these things that I was like, wow, this guy found a way to do these, like, tired old things incredibly well. And then they all failed semi-famously. He was always the first one canceled. And they would write stories of, like, first casualty of the new year. And it's always for this poor guy, Noah Halley. And then find, but I was just talking to my agents and saying, I really want to work with this guy. If he doesn't kill himself, I want to uh, do whatever he's going to do next. And then she, my agent said, uh, well, he's doing Fargo. And I thought, that's a terrible idea, except for he's a great writer, so maybe it'll be good. And then it was. And so then, because I hounded after that, I was able to... And you've done the opening episode? Of uh, the new season. I didn't work on the first season, but in the second season, yeah. yeah I was able yeah. to. That's God. fantastic. Listen, we've only got... Um, Ten minutes left. Let's very quickly show them. Have you got um, Ray Donovan? There you go. Sure. So this, I feel bad because this is the end of season two. I don't know if any of you have seen Ray Donovan. This is a bit yeah. of a spoiler. Oh, yes. Okay, I'll show it. Um, I don't want to leave the room. <laughs> so this is. I'm not going to explain all the stories to you. This is a somewhat typical, at least in American television, uh, end of season montage, wrapping up a bunch of stories. So I'm not going to really tell you too much, other than uh, it starts with um, Abby Donovan, Ray's wife, who's kind of packing because she thinks she's going to leave and go away because they're all worried about the daughter, Ray Donovan's daughter and Abby Donovan's daughter being killed by this rap mogul, and they need to skip town because he's probably going to kill her because she witnessed something she shouldn't have witnessed. And then the rest of it, you see all the other characters. <laughs>
with just very quickly, obviously the, the mood of that is just extraordinary. Again, it's this tonal quality, this kind of noir feeling going on there. Yeah. Um, and is that the only time that you break the fourth wall? Yeah. That's so cool. I love breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> it's, right it's great. It's the right time. Yeah, I mean, that was Liev's idea, actually. We had been talking about it, and, uh, and he said, you think I should look down the barrel? And I was like, yeah. So I, I tend to love that. I know people don't really like it, and sometimes well, it's it the right moment, isn't it? And I did a scene that I wish I could show of uh, an American horror story where there's an interview going on where there's a, a doctor from the second season where he's trying to convince this lesbian that he can give her uh, a version um, treatment that would make her not a lesbian anymore, and then she could get out of this insane asylum if she was not a lesbian. And so we, halfway through, story we right cut there. to. Uh, looking down the barrel, and I don't know how many of you have done it, but it's very disorienting for actors, because you're looking at the lens, so it's weird, you know, and you're kind of just tripping out, and it's like, how do I get my eyes to not move, and, and it's very hard for them to do, because there's no real center to the lens, so it's, but it's a fun thing that I like to do. From time to time, it works really well. Yeah, well, that was just a fabulous punctuation to, uh, yeah. to the end of the season. Uh, just to connect directly with the audience and what a roll call of extraordinary actors oh my god I know are you kidding they're amazing <laughs> they're all yeah it's I wish I had a longer clip of John Voight to show you there's a hell of an actor how was working with John Voight John Voight is a real treat John Voight is made to act he's he's wonderful I know a lot of people have thoughts about his politics people tell me that all the time but oh is he really right wing apparently but I've never talked to him at all we talk a lot on set he loves to be on set he's never in his trailer and uh Never once have I heard anything about any of the things that you hear about with him. He just loves to talk about the scene itself. He'll talk about that little scene, looking at the hat and walking down the hallway. He'll talk the whole time, from rehearsal through, he'll be there through lighting of just like, you know, you think I should hold it like this, or should I turn it over? Or, yeah. And then he'll, he'll just think about it the whole time. Or he'll tell you stories about all the wonderful <laughs> movies he's been in. And then, you know... He'll say, That's like, you know, John Borman? That's <laughs> like, do tell. <laughs> so, it's great. I mean, it's... I did tell you the story this the other night where the first time I worked with John Voight, um, the very first time, it was a complicated scene. It was not this episode, and there was this house party going on in all these different parts of the, houses, uh, the house, so it had to be orchestrated so that it worked out. And all this stuff is happening continuously, and, of course, we're not shooting it continuously. So you got to hide other rooms so you don't have the actors sitting there the whole time. And John kept having these ideas. The very first day I worked with him about, well, what if I go over there? And I'm just thinking, you can't go over there. We already shot that scene. You know, you would be in it. And uh, and I had to turn him down on that. And he kind of looked at me like, turning me down, are you? Turning down I John said, Voight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, he did this like five times where he really had an idea and some of them were not going over and I was just like I just don't think that's right and I'm just thinking I can't believe I'm working with John Boyd and I'm turning this guy down and these are probably great ideas and some of them we tried and I would just say I just don't think so John I think it's better the other way and some of them like a gesture like sometimes he'll do something like he, he mentioned some it was something about his the size of his penis and then he had a joke of like uh, it was about the, like, it was really long, and then he had a joke about how, uh, no, it's just three inches. And he loves these kinds of jokes where it's very self-deprecating at the end. And then he would do these, like, gestures of just, like, it's long, and then it's three inches, and I was like, John, it's better if you just do it. And we tried it, 
and I even did takes of it, and he's like, you're not going to use that take, are you? And I was like, no, <laughs> I can't lie to you, uh, no, I don't think I am, I think it's better the other way. And then finally on the sixth take, he said, uh, I, he said he had a great idea that I liked, and I was like, that's terrific, John, and he's like, oh, you like that one, do you? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I do. And as I was saying the other night to this day, I don't know if those other ideas were a test or if it was just John's full of ideas. It's very hard to say. I don't know if he was testing my taste or if he really had these ideas or what it was, but whatever it was, I got the, one of the best compliments I've ever had just to brag for a moment here. I put him in the van at the end of the day because it was John Voigt, and I was saying thank you so much for your great work today. And, uh, and he gets into the van and uh, he says, you're fucking good closes it one final question anybody got one final question before we relinquish this beautiful room no uh, no I was just wondering how much do you bring of your own personal life the onion farm into uh, developing that trust with actors how about like well that might be a better question for them they know more on the onion farm well, we had the onion farm, it was always Don's dream, but as to what Michael brings to it, all of you here in Dublin, in Ireland, should know his Irishness. Of course, <laughs> of course. you got to remember, what do the Irish thrive on? The word. We love, we love language. I mean, and I, I think acting and all that is just part of who what we are. And he has a lot of that. Do you, do you remember when... Uh, some friends would come over and bring their kids, and they'd come over to play with our two kids and stuff. And we'd be sitting out in the living room in the dining room, talking and having a drink. Pretty soon, Pastor Michael here had come over with all the kids that were brought out. He had, he had <laughs> arranged them as actors and directed this show. And some of them were, you know, four or five years older than he was. And this is before he started school. And, and so when he's four and five years old, he's going to need seven year, eight year old kids as well as the others out there to put on a show for us. That's brilliant. Look, all that remains for me to say is, Mike Uppendahl, it is an absolute privilege and a pleasure to have you in Ireland. And thank you so it's much for giving us pleasure. so it's much of your time. Honestly. Thank you so much.